and be seated. Hey, if you've got a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. Really excited about getting into this particular passage. It's ministered to me this week, and as we think about it, let's just ask God to bless the reading of his word, that our hearts would be good recipients of it, that we'd be ready to hear it. Just to set up this this text a little bit, you have to understand what was happening right before this in order to understand what's about to be talked about as Jesus enters in Jerusalem. Uh, And they cried out, Hosanna, and waved the palm branches. So before we kind of talk about this, I want to set it up a little bit. That the Pharisees have heard this incredible news that Jesus went to a dead man's place, Lazarus, and he raised him from the grave. And this is so upsetting for them because they knew it would be a threat to their power that they've decided they have to kill Jesus. That's what precedes this passage. So we begin looking at John chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Read it along with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of exempt expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was with him about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, But because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. There it is again. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm leaves and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, 
I pray that this picture and this passage of worship and response to you would captivate our minds and our hearts. That we too would respond with inhibition and joy and loving and serving and honoring you. I pray that the feast that we see here and that follows in this gathering today would be like the one on that day where the aroma of worship just fills up the spaces. That it would fill the conversations and the interactions. That your love towards us would help us to respond not only to you, but towards one another with grace and compassion and and generosity, Lord. I pray that this would be so of us as we gather under this your word. Pray that it would transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love all the traditions that come with this season. Um, The tradition that just happened today, maybe we haven't done that in a couple years because we didn't have kids gathering in the last couple years, but just seeing kids waving palm branches and the traditions that we're setting in their minds that maybe they don't even have a clue what it means, right? But one day they're going to understand what we're doing. Hopefully all of us who maybe celebrate over the coming weeks with family and with friends, Easter egg hunts, which we will love to watch in just a moment that happen after this, Palm Sunday, Good Friday. And when we recount the events of this week, there's this possibility that we would see them and in the same way that the disciples witnessed them firsthand, they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't see it clearly until later. And then they looked back on these events and said, oh, now I see what was happening. And I think that's really important for us as we look at this passage because we too can be lost in all the business of it. All the Hallmark cards in the candy aisle at Walmart and Target. From picnics to hunts. In all of it and in this week that lies ahead, Jesus Christ is still worthy of all of our attention and all of our affections. And so in the same way that in the middle of all of this crowd that didn't understand what was going on, you see Mary pouring out her heart. My hope is that as we come to this God's word today, that we too would see that he's worthy. That's the point of all of it. That's why we do all these things. That he's worthy of our attention and our love and affections. He's worthy above everything else that we could put our mind on or set our hearts on. And so today's going to matter because Jesus is still so worthy. He's so worthy of anything that we might bring to him as a gift or an offering or a song of praise. And so we're going to walk through this passage. I'm going to make observations that any person who can read and observe things can make. Okay, There's nothing special about my observations. And we're going to walk through this extraordinary meal, an extravagant act of worship that Mary has, and this presumptuous critique of Judas as he looks on and says, what has she done? So I want to ask you as we walk through it that you'd continue to pray, Lord, show me the ways that I find myself in this story. Now, as we go back to this extravagant meal, uh, I love this, this poet, Malcolm Geith, who wrote this poem about this moment that might provoke our imagination a little bit before we dive into it. I'll read this poem. It's going to be on the screen. Come close with Mary, Martha, Lazarus. So close the candles stir with their soft breath and kindle heart and soul to flame within us. Lit by these mysteries of life and death, 
Her beauty now begins the final movement in quietness and intimate encounter. The alabaster jar of precious ointment is broken open for the world's true lover. The whole room richly fills to feast the senses. With all the yearnings such a fragrance brings, the heart is mourning, but the spirit dances. Here at the very center of all things, here at the meeting place of love and loss, we all foresee and see beyond the cross. Beautiful, isn't it? To provoke our imagination for a moment, to sense what it must have been like in this room where maybe the only person who knew that death was coming was Jesus himself. I want to walk through a few things in this first verse of chapter 12. When is it happening? The first thing that it says is happening right there on the edge of Passover, a time when there's tons of memory, both nationally, they would remember their deliverance from Egypt, and spiritually, that God's provision for them, his deliverance for them, this way of salvation was supernatural. And every single year they would have rehearsed it. And if they had Target and Walmart, there would have been cards and candy so that they remembered what was coming with the Passover meal. It would have provoked custom and celebration. This celebration that that in so many ways that we can get lost in today is similar for them that they all would have traveled together and had meals together and remembered being together. But there's this possibility, like I said before, that they would see the shadow and miss the reality. And so for us today, the reality of what they're celebrating as they move towards Passover, that there is a great God of deliverance. We get to focus in again six days before this big feast would have began where everyone was traveling and they gather about two miles outside of the city. That's when it's happening. Where is it happening? Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. So they're sitting in a suburb waiting for the moment when they would all gather together to remember what Jesus, what God had done for them. And you can't understand this chapter without understanding what's happened before. And so I want to quickly review what's happened in Bethany. We don't know how long of a time has passed. But Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, have been in this town and they sent word to Jesus that their brother was sick and dying. And we find out in chapter 11 that Jesus loved them. It says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, Lazarus. He loved them. He had an affection for them. And the terrible thing that had happened before Jesus showed up, Lazarus dies. This moment of disappointment for Mary and Martha has to be understood so that we can understand their worship that happens around this table, both serving and loving Jesus and anointing. Both of them, when Jesus shows up late, says this, if you would have been here, something different would have happened. They had an intimate enough relationship with Jesus that they would have brought their disappointment to him and said, hey, we were expecting something different from you, Jesus. We thought something different was going to happen. Look at this. Martha said to Jesus, right as he shows up, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then it goes on to Mary as soon as she comes out to meet him. What's the first thing she says? When Mary comes out to see where Jesus was, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And there in the midst of their disappointment, 
Jesus does something that they could not have possibly expected. And it's the foundation of why they're making this meal to honor Jesus. He calls for Lazarus from the grave. He walks out and they say, unbind him. And immediately the Pharisees and everyone that were grasping for power knew that they had a really extraordinary problem on their hands. They could not stop the word of this great miracle. Word is spreading faster than they could contain it. And that's what's happening on the cusp of this meal. It says it five times in the passage. They're here to acknowledge what Jesus had done specifically for them right in the midst of their disappointment where they said, if you had been here, this would have been different. Jesus shows up, completely changes things, and now, however long later, they're honoring him with this meal. Mary, Mary, is there at the feet. Martha is where she normally is, where you'd know. She's there in the kitchen serving thing. And Lazarus, both the miracle and the miracle maker, is sitting together at a meal. Everyone gathered around him. Now, here's what I'm going to say before I move on. Some of you today, I know you've said those same words of Mary and Martha. You've said, if you would have been here, God, if you would have been good, if you would have shown up, this scenario would have been different for me and for the people that I love. And not all of us get to feast this side of heaven, but all of us know that reality. God, if you would have only, then this would have been different. And what I want to say to you is just to encourage you that before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he wept with them. He knew everything he was going to do, and he cried with them. He was present with them. He ached with them in their disappointment, and then later he just raised them up from the grave. So they gathered together with Jesus who loved them, who had done something extraordinary for them, and before he had ever done anything extraordinary for them, he wept with them in their disappointment, and now they're hosting this meal to acknowledge that God has been kinder to them than they could have expected. Here's Lazarus, here's Jesus, and their great undoing of their disappointment. And they're sitting around the table, cups filled, absolutely amazed that somehow in the midst of their pain, Jesus has come through for them. The reality that Jesus can bring dead things to life is powerful. It's really powerful. But it's most powerful for those who know the grief of dead things. And so these people that are gathered around Jesus, they knew the, the great work that Jesus had done. Now there's a crowd gathering outside, okay? There's a group of people that are coming around saying, this man does things that no one has ever done before. But it was very personable. It was very personal for those at this table. Some are gathering to see the miracle worker. Some are gathering to see the miracle. And no matter what, they're all kind of gathering around Jesus. And I want to say this as a side note, too. Over the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a lot of people who gather to just see the spectacle of Easter again. Okay? And what I want you to know is it's not on you to sort them all out. Jesus seems glad that all of them came, doesn't he? I mean, he's like, in fact, when, when someone criticizes someone worshiping here, he's like, no, you leave them alone. You leave them alone. 
So before we move into looking at what happens next, maybe some of you here today feel like spectators to the great things that God has either done for others, but you feel like maybe you're still waiting on him to do something good for you. Maybe there's people around you that would bear witness to this this resurrection king who said about himself, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. And you see other people believing in that, but you're not sure that you can believe that for yourself. I just want you to know you're welcome here. It's a good place for people that are weary and wondering and spectating for a while. I can only imagine what the people watching around this table must have thought when what happened happened next. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This amazing act of worship should move us. Now, some of the people in the room, it says that even the disciples were disturbed about this in one of the other Gospels. They're all looking on going, this is getting a little weird, okay? This is getting, this is getting strange. They were very uncomfortable. <laughs> None of them say anything, but we find out they all are looking on going, this is awkward, okay? She's getting real close to Jesus' feet. Really close. So close. But she's wiping his feet with her hair. And this intimate moment in Jesus' life and the life of his followers and disciples gives us this window looking both on someone who's worshiping Jesus with reckless abandon. It gives us a window on those people that are observing her there, those that are watching, and how they all respond to her, how Jesus responds to her in this really intimate moment. So I want to point out a few things for Mary. I've already said this is personal for her. She had a great need. She knew him. Jesus loved her. She loved him. Jesus loves Martha, loves Lazarus. He loves this family, and he sits there knowing. And this isn't the first time that Mary has sat at his feet. She sits there listening in one of the other Gospels while Martha's going, you need to get her to come in the kitchen with me. This is her regular posture when Jesus is hosted for dinner. And there in her disappointment, she and and this amazing surprise that God could make all things new, specifically in her family. This demonstration of Jesus' power, I want to point again that it's personal for her. It's not just that he's some far-off resurrection king. He's a resurrection king that did something personal for her. Jesus was seen as so valuable that she took this thing, this ointment that we later find out that's worth a whole year's wages for a day laborer. So you imagine something worth about 25 grand. It can't be scooped back up. It can only be used once. Many of the commentators speculate that maybe this was something that would have been given as a dowry for marriage or embalmed, saved for a funeral for someone. It was very expensive and at great personal cost, either to her or to her family. I don't know how she gained this thing to pour out, but she gets it, she breaks it open, and pours it on him. What I want you to know is that touching someone's feet for this group of people was so degrading. It was so degrading. It would have been reserved for someone who might be a slave or someone who was a servant in someone's house. No one would have just... Uh, done this flippantly. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that, she, that Mary thought very little of herself. What it reveals is that she thought rightly of Jesus and his value. She saw that he was so high above and exalted. She saw it and she willingly stooped down to his feet and poured out this expensive gift. This expression of worship and joy and salvation that she had received. C.S. Lewis says that these kinds of acts of praise just completes the joy. It's like something is missing if you just observe that God is good. You have to complete the joy that you have in him by expressing it. And I want you to know that worship is always demonstrative. It always expresses itself. If you value something, you're going to say with your life and with your words and with your actions, this thing is valuable to me. And Mary pours out this great gift on his feet and she lowers herself before him, not because she's some kind of low human being, but because Jesus Christ is exalted in this moment. This precursor of what's going to happen with him over the next week, that he's moving towards being glorified. This worship has a way to make spectators uncomfortable. You ever been in a worship service and you look around and say, I don't know if I'd have done that. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if I would have done what they just did. Have you ever found yourself thinking not about how you would do things differently, but how other people should? <laughs> I can know. I am guilty of that, okay? And in this passage, you definitely do not want to be the person going, well, I wish they would worship differently. Multiple times in multiple ways, I found myself wondering and living in this tension between how should things be done with God's people? How should we worship him? That's a worthy question for us to consider. It's a really worthy question to say, Jesus, how would you have us worship you? But there's moments like this of just reckless inhibition where someone comes to the feet of Jesus and brings all that she has, the most expensive thing that she could have given, and just pours it out without question. Maybe nobody around her uh, <laughs> would have voiced this out loud to say, Mary, you should reconsider if they knew that she was about to do this. Who knows? Maybe some people knew. Some people didn't know what she was about to do. But Judas looks on, and he voices what other people were unwilling to voice. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why did he say it? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This presumptuous critique that comes out of his mouth in this moment. Judas has the audacity to speak up when everyone else is uncomfortable and they're quiet, they're watching. Wondering, what in the world does Jesus think about this woman? What does he think about this uncomfortable situation? And everybody who had allergies to perfume was just coughing in the background. <laughs> and he begins to wonder, this cost? This cost? A year's wages wasted like this when it could have been used on something so much better? He misses a couple of things here, okay? Number one, Jesus is infinitely more valuable than some bottle of perfume. He misses that. And then he misses something else, that there's nothing 
There is nothing adequately lavish to pour on our Savior, who's about to pour out his life for everyone who would believe. Look, Jesus doesn't want some kind of offering that could potentially match his greatness. Because if you were matching this extravagant gift to his greatness, it still would look minuscule. It still would look far too small if we could see his value. This offering, no matter how small it was, was pleasing not because of its size or its expense. It was pleasing because she brought what she had and gave it to him. This offering is small compared to what Jesus is about to offer himself for all of humanity. And Judas's uh, critique, man, it's living proof that you can be that close to the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, and still miss it. You can be this close to Jesus and walk with him for three years and still reject him, still ignore his worth. For those who feel like you failed in trying to make a disciple of someone else, let me just let this be a comfort to you. This guy walked with Jesus, God in the flesh, and he still said, no, I'm good. And he walked away from him. Ultimately, Judas misses the most important thing right in front of him. And it reveals a few things about Judas. Number one, he was thinking, if Jesus could see what I see and know what I know, he would do things differently. How presumptuous is that? To look at someone offering their praise and their worship to Jesus and say, if Jesus only could see what I see. But how many times do we do the same thing? We say, if Jesus knew what I knew, if he could see what I see, he would work this situation differently. It's also presumptuous because he's saying, I know something better. I would do things differently. Judas, within the week, not only sells Jesus, but he sells him for 30 pieces of silver, the equivalent of $1,000. And he starts to take this path towards his own death. He wants money, not Jesus. He wants what he can get, not Jesus himself. And today my hope and our hope is that we would learn to see him and not just see him as one to be observed, but to see his value and see that he is far above anything that we might have to offer. So how does Jesus respond to this presumptuous critique? Look at verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I want to take a few observations about Jesus' response. Leave her alone, okay? Really clear. He's going, you do not need to evaluate what she's brought, what she's done. You need to leave her be. There's this protection over what Mary was doing. She was in her normal place, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Even when she came to him with her disappointment in the previous chapter, she falls at his feet and says, if you would have been here, this would have been different. She is accustomed to being at the feet of Jesus, and she brings this offering to this place, and Jesus says, leave her be. 
Then he says, the poor you're going to have with you, but you don't always have me. This moment, what he's saying, this moment, this unique moment in time, you're going to miss it, Judas. You're missing the point. You're missing this particular moment where she's pouring out her heart. Her values were in alignment with Jesus's values in this moment. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. Jesus' correction is that he's always worth whatever people might bring to him. He's always worth it. This little picture, this microcosm of what's happening at this dinner table is also what's going to happen when people gather around the, the road and shout Hosanna. They're saying, I don't know everything there is to know about this guy, but I hope he's the king of Israel. They didn't even understand what they were doing, just as she didn't understand that she was anointing him for his burial. They're crying, Hosanna, God, save us, save us, save us. That's what Hosanna means. So we say Hosanna in past tense, looking back, saying, he is the God who saved us. He's the one. And that's the story of today. Jesus is always infinitely worthy. He's worthy of all power and honor and glory. And so we get this freedom and we're invited to come before him with no inhibitions and declare with our lives, not with some offering, all of us that he is worthy. So I want to leave you with this question. Jesus is worthy. Okay, that's what we're observing in this passage. How do you personally respond to that? Because there are a lot of ways to respond. You can look at other people looking at him declaring his worth. You can kind of join the crowd, kind of going, I think he's worthy. Hosanna to him. But in this moment today, in between all the moments where we've said, if only you would have shown up, if only you would have done the thing that I thought was good for me, in between this moment and the moment where he invites us all to his table and all of us will respond, he is worthy of all power and honor and glory. In the tension that we live in today, how do you respond while you wait in your disappointment? I also want you to know, listen, there's ways that people love Jesus that make me personally a little uncomfortable, okay? But I want us to be so cautious so cautious to evaluate others as they love Jesus. If Jesus, physically present with his disciples, had someone like Judas looking on going, I don't know what this is about, and Jesus would correct him, I wonder what attitudes he would correct in our congregation as we come before his throne. Listen, we can be a little happy clappy here because we love Jesus. And there's times when we're really sober and somber and we stand still with reverence before King Jesus. And there's songs that we sing that some of you are like, I don't get it. I don't understand. There's people that raise their hands and people that get on their knees and they posture themselves and demonstrate their, outwardly what they have in their heart, just an affection for Jesus and his worth. I don't want to point out with Judas, most of the conflicts are kind of like that. People are seeking what they can get for themselves when they're evaluating each other. He wasn't evaluating her because he's like, this isn't how Jesus wants to be worshipped. He was out for himself. Same was true with the Pharisees. Later, he says, look, we can't stop them. Everybody's going after them. 
Everyone's going after him. It later says some of them even believed him, but they were craving the glory that comes from man, not the glory that comes from God. And so they're, they're trying to shut down people worshiping him because they're scared of what it will mean for themselves. Listen, I don't want you to be afraid of what Jesus might require of you. Here's why. There's nothing in this temporary life you'll ever trade in that will not be like plastic for gold compared to his worth. There's nothing that you could pour out that could potentially match what he's poured out for us. And so for those of us, I want us to see this great loss and expense that she poured out was just pointing forward to the one that Jesus would pour out. And just as those who would critique her sacrifice and say, is this what really Jesus wanted? Sometimes the enemy of the saints would look at what Christ has done on our behalf and say, it wasn't worth it. The enemy would look at us and say, what a waste of resources. (laughs) But Jesus says, no, the cross demonstrates my great love for everyone who would believe. He doesn't declare. I love the song that we sing here. uh, Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed. My ransom paid on the cross. So for us who are trusting in Jesus Christ, you know, what gives us the strength, the audacity to come before him, however we might come, broken, messy, is because Jesus declared our value by giving himself. He poured out his love in this great act that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so every week we get to rehearse this response, that he set his affections on us as his bride and he invites us to wonder and to glory at the mystery that all that we might give couldn't repay the the price that he paid. And he invites us back to this altar and to this table where we don't declare with our gifts, but with everything that we have, he is worthy. So let's declare this together. This is a question and a response. Would you guys get your uh, communion cups? I want to read this communion liturgy over us as a congregation and invite you to declare it with me. I'm going to ask you a question. And the portions that are underlined and say family, I want us as a family, not just to receive these words, but to speak them over one another. Because there's people in this room wondering, how can I possibly draw near to Jesus? How can I possibly come to his table? And so we rehearse this together. What right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? Say it with me, family. It's going to be on the next slide. (laughs) We who believe have every right to dine at his table. I'm going to ask you, what gives us this right? Say it with me. We have this right because Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. Not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and frail and desire strength. 
to all who sin and need a Savior. Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Let's take this bread and remember his body that was broken. And let's take this cup together and remember his blood, his precious blood that was broken and spilled out for everyone who would believe. Take and remember. Now, we're going to sing again. There's this, song, there's this place in Revelation where John is having this vision of God's book, his scrolls. And he comes to the scrolls, and there's no one found worthy to open the scrolls. And he's distraught. He's weeping. He's saying, there's nobody worthy to come and open up God's book. And they search far and wide, and then they come to this reality that Jesus Christ alone is worthy, and Jesus comes and opens up God's book, and he says together, all of the saints will be gathered around his throne declaring he's worthy of all honor and glory and strength forever. And so let's declare together that even though this world is broken, we know that he's worthy. Stand up and sing with us.